We come to this week to the final message in this series on unity and diversity. It's part three, and here it is in chapter 15. Last week, uh, we saw an important takeaway truth, that Christian liberty will test the depth of our spiritual maturity and love for God's people. That as Christians, when we are called upon to curtail our freedom, we, we do this for the betterment and for the benefit of other believers because of how this disputable matter can potentially impact them in a negative way. That as important as it is for us to enjoy our freedom, it is even more important to see the values of the kingdom and that the growth of the gospel occurs in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and not let that be curtailed because of a disputable matter where we insist on enjoying our freedom. I was in a conversation with a young man and, and we're talking about this whole idea. How is it possible for someone's spiritual walk to be hindered and to maybe even enter into sin because of someone else's actions in a disputable matter? Uh, this is what was happening in the, in the Roman church between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians. And as we were talking, the illustration that came to mind was something that was happening in our own nation. And it was particularly applicable because we are, he and I are of such different generations in our ages. This week, a study came out that from one of the pollsters that how uh, the generations are responding to the protests that are taking place in our nation is very different. So for example, 18 to 29 year olds, which this young man fell into that age group, they believe that it is a perfectly acceptable form of political dissent and expression to essentially desecrate the American flag, whether it be burn it or in some other way not respect it, uh, have no problems at all with uh, athletes, for example, kneeling uh, during the, the presentation of the colors and during the singing of the national anthem. As you look at my generation and the generations above me, um, we do not respond like that. Uh, overwhelmingly, that, that act of political uh, dissent and how that's expressed is deeply offensive. And so as we had this conversation, uh, it was an eye-opener, eye-opener for both of us. As I explained to him, because he could not understand why is something like a flag all that important to us, and I explained to him that this is a symbol for many of us, this is a symbol of our nation, of all that is great and good and affirming about our nation. It doesn't mean that we don't have issues as a nation, that we don't have problems and injustices that need to be addressed and need to be rectified. But the flag is a symbol of all that is good and great and what has made us great. In particular, as I explained to him, when I see the, the red stripes in the flag, as we were taught in grade school, this color represents the blood of our forefathers, of our family members who, who died or were wounded in defense of our very ability to protest. So as I explained to him, I said, I look at the flag and what I see is I see my parents who, who lived and they worked and their family fought through World War II or my parents who were, who were actively in the military in the Korean War or family members who were in the Vietnam War or my grandparents who lived and fought and, and, and were alive during World War I and the family members who shed blood on foreign land on both my side of the family, Catherine's side of the family, even cousins who died in Iraq defending freedom for us the flag is a very important symbol 
And so for it to be desecrated, for it to not be honored, is to dishonor our loved ones who sacrificed to give us this freedom. And so as he's looking at me, I said, let's think of it like this. Think, imagine if I went to say the grave of your mother and father and I destroyed their headstone, I desecrated their grave, I deliberately relieved myself on, on that, that resting place. How would that offend you? What would be the, your reaction? It would be a normal, natural reaction to have such a strong virulent, vitriolic response that in, in some way you probably would be tempted to sin. I said, that's what happens to many people in America when they see that symbol of what is good about America treated disrespectfully. And so then there's a tie-in here. Imagine the Jews and the Gentiles of the Roman church, right? The Jews, Jewish Christians, they had started out in the Old Covenant. Their heritage was the Mosaic law and the observance of the Sabbath, the, the keeping of the dietary commands and eating kosher and, and not becoming unclean in ceremonial senses. And so here they become believers of Christ, but yet this is their heritage. This is part of their background, just like the flag for many of us has a different connotation than maybe a younger generation today. And so as they come into the church and they believe in Jesus, and then, then here's Gentiles, by analogy, a younger generation, right, who come to Jesus. They have this in common, but when the Gentiles do not observe or treat cavalierly the Sabbath or the dietary laws or the, the matters of cleanness and uncleanness, it creates such a virulent response within the inner man that it entices one to sin to get angry, to get bitter, to, to say things that really are not appropriate. And so this is what was going on in the Roman church. The, the, they were stumbling over disputable matters such as this. So this week, as Paul closes out his teachings on Christian liberty, he concludes this section of thought with a thought that summarizes everything that he's been speaking of since chapter 14, verse 1. He's telling us that our liberty in Christ is meant to unify the church and glorify our Savior. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, there's an outline on the screen for you. We're going to take these 13 verses and break them down into four sections. First, there's the principle of sacrifice in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, there's the power of the Scriptures in verse 4. Then the path to true unity in verses 5 to 7. And then we're going to conclude with the plan of God revealed in our unity in verses 8 to 13. I will read these verses as we make our way through the message this morning. So let's pause right now and let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the message. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we are able to gather virtually this morning. We thank you that you are the sovereign God who controls all the storms, even a hurricane with a name that I can't pronounce. Uh, Lord, we know that you are in control of it all. We ask that you would protect our fellow citizens here in Florida and throughout our nation as this storm makes its way up the eastern seaboard. We pray, Father, for those people in the Bahamas and in Puerto Rico and other countries that have already felt the force. We pray that you would Help them to recover quickly. Lord, if lives were lost, we ask that you would give comfort to those families. 
Father, we pray for our church, and especially, Lord, this week that's coming up, as we focus on prayer and praying specifically for our nation and for our church and for our people, that you would heal our land, that you would bring literal healing from the pandemic that we've been experiencing, that you would bring healing in our culture as we are deeply divided over issues. God, we pray that you would do a work of grace in our hearts and in our church and in our country. We ask that you would do all of this for your glory. And Father, as we turn to your word, we want to hear from you this morning. May your spirit speak to us through your divinely inspired word, which you have given to us through your apostles. May we hear you. May you give us ears that can hear and a heart that is willing to obey. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's start with the principle of sacrifice. Verse 1 says, we who are strong, and, and right away we see something here. This is the first time that Paul has identified himself with one group in this church over another. He says, I am with you, the strong. In other words, I have the ability and I do see that our faith allows us to eat and drink and not have to observe certain days, whereas the weak are not yet able to see that with their faith. They have not connected those dots. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit has not done this work of grace yet in their heart so that they have freedom in these areas. So he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In verse 1, Paul makes a very important introductory point, right? That our uh, curtailment of freedom, the legitimate curtailment of freedom, is not optional for those of us who want to follow Christ, and for those who are considered strong, who have freedom in a disputable matter. Not only is it not optional, it's actually an obligation. He uses a word here that equals to our concept of debt. It is something that we ought to do, that we owe to our fellow believer out of love. He's using words and he's, that he used earlier, and he's pointing us back to chapter 13, verse 8, where he wrote, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. So in other words, a selfish, you know, I don't care what they think. I don't care what their problem or what their issue is. I'm going to do what I want to do because this is not sin and it's okay for me to do it. That kind of attitude is antithetical to the gospel. There's actually a gospel paradox at play here. Uh, an unwillingness to curtail our freedom, a legitimate curtailment of our freedom for the benefit of a Christian brother is actually evidence that we aren't strong after all. So this is something that we owe. It's a debt of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He says we're to bear with them their failings. The idea of bearing with is that it's a burden. It is difficult. It is inconvenient at times. It does require an adjustment of our lives and our lifestyle. But this curtailment of our freedom, which is a burden to the strong, is worthwhile when the gospel is able to do its work within the life of the fellow believer. It makes the sacrifice worthwhile. 
In Galatians chapter 6, he tells us that we're to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is how important this curtailment of freedom is. It fulfills what it means to be a follower of Christ. Therefore, this is an obligation. This isn't something optional that we can do when we feel like it. It's what, part of what it means to be a Christian. And so this curtailment of our freedom has a goal. The goal is to build up the weak, as he says in verse 2. And naturally, the question then becomes, how is this accomplished? How is it done that we build them up? Well, we build up the person who disagrees with us on a disputable matter when we come to them in a humble, non-resentful posture with a willingness to curtail our freedom. We build them up through a sincere desire to understand their perspective on a matter and a situation. My conversation with that young man was incredibly fruitful for him and for me because as we talked with one another, we heard where the other person was coming from. We heard, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. You know, I heard from him the rest of the story why these kinds of protests that we're seeing in our country right now are so important to him. And as he heard from me, and he even said, I've never thought of it that way before, as he thinks about my heritage and my family and, and all that is invested in that symbol of the flag for many Americans of different generations, he was hearing the rest of the story. And when you hear the rest of the story and the life of maybe a Christian who is not where you're at on a disputable matter, it makes the sacrifice so much easier to handle. I know of a pastor who many years ago, he was dealing with a couple who were debating a disputable matter. At least back then it was a disputable matter. I don't know if it's a disputable matter now or not, but you know, in decades past, having a plastic surgery that was not absolutely required because of an accident, in other words, elective types of plastic surgery was, was kind of seen within Christian evangelicalism as problematic, right? Arrogant pride, any number of of motives were attached to it. And so he had a, a couple who came to him and they wanted to know if it would be a sin if one of them had an elective surgery, a plastic surgery. They wanted an aspect of their body modified. And, and so the pastor wisely didn't just jump in and, and give his opinion on it. He instead asked questions, questions that were designed to hear the rest of the story. He asked them, why did they care if it was sin or not. And so he was able to discern that they truly were believers who wanted to glorify God. And so he ultimately ended up asking that really important question, why do you want to have this surgery? And the answers that were then given were very revealing about what was going on in the life of the one spouse and the fact that the other spouse didn't agree. And so once he understood the rest of the story and the backstory that was going on in this person's life, and their motivation behind wanting an elective surgery, he was able to bring the scriptures to bear to address that underlying motive behind the disputable matter of, which was disputable at that time. And so timing here is really important. Entering into a conversation, a dialogue with, a, with another believer who has a difference of opinion on a disputable matter, hearing their story, hearing their rationale, taking a posture of humble learning, and then maybe taking a break and praying and thinking about it and coming back together 
and bringing the, the power of God's word to bear on what is going on. This is what is restorative to the person who's struggling in a disputable matter. This goal of building up, Paul says in verse two, it's not just for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse two, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That choice of the word neighbor is important. This now takes it outside the boundaries of the family of God and it extends it into the community at large with men and women and people that we interact with who are not believers in Jesus Christ. So the principle of sacrifice is also true with how we interact with our fellow man, regardless of their belief in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller unpacks this in a, in a neat way. And what he points out is that the people with power, and, and when he says power here, he's talking about specifically Christians who have the resources, the ability in economic, cultural, social arenas to make a difference, to address a need, a weakness, that a failing that is in the life of our neighbor. He says the people with power must be stewards of their power to build up and please those who are weak in that area. They are not to use their power to build up themselves and make themselves feel comfortable. And the motivation, the example that we are given for making this sacrifice is given in verse three, when Paul points us to Jesus. You know, what, what's interesting here is that we find in these opening verses, especially in verse one, Paul using words that were used on a consistent basis in the gospels and application as they were applied to Jesus. And so when he uses the words failings, for example, or weaknesses or illnesses, depending on your, your translation in verse one, or how we bear those burdens in verse one, these are the words that are used about Jesus. In Matthew 8, 17, he took our weaknesses, he took our failings, he took our illnesses, the same word that we have in verse one, and he bore, same word, our diseases. He who was this penultimate example of power, of, of being strong, of having ability, he took upon himself the scorn and the ridicule that the profane men shouted out towards God. He did all this not to please himself, but to please us who were powerless before our sin and before a righteous God. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to give his life as a sacrifice for many. The principle of the sacrifice. Secondly, the power of the scriptures. Verse four, and kind of like what is maybe a parenthetical statement, just something that, you know, almost like, you know, quick rabbit trail and back. You know, Paul gives us verse four, for whatever was written, in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And in the middle of this conversation about, you know, sacrificing our liberty for the benefit of the weak, and he points us to Jesus, he then says, look at the scriptures themselves. Look at what they do for us. They apply and they, they apply to every area of our lives. They instruct us, they give us encouragement and hope every area of our lives. You know, I, I was struck by that this week. And so I pulled out a book I probably haven't looked at in 
eons. I think I bought it when I was in college, but it's a, it's a topical organization of the Bible. In other words, every subject matter, topic of the Bible, organized alphabetically, and I thought, hmm, I wonder, is, is there something in the Bible for every letter of the alphabet? And so I began to look at this book, and, and there are somewhere between 20 and 25,000 different topics that are addressed in the scriptures. You name the arena of life, and the Bible gives us instruction and guidance and wisdom. And so I, I, I started up my own list, uh, alphabetical list of, of topics. A, anxiety. B, business. These are all things covered in the scriptures. C, children. D, dating and sex, employment, financial advice, government, hope, idolatry, justice, kindness, love, marriage and family, neighbors, obedience, purity, quarrels. Now, I will admit that Q like in Scrabble, gives me difficulties. And that was a hard one, but quarreling with one another is in the Bible. Uh, R, relationships, shame, taxes, unity, violence, work, xenophobia. There you go, that, that, the X was the really hard one. But, but in other words, racism, hatred between tribal groups and national groups, and violence and and antagonism and hostility that exists between people who look different from one another. Why youth, teenagers, right? Parenting them, and then Z, zeal. The scriptures cover it all. And, and what it says, that it encourages us, that gives us hope, as Paul points out. And the prophet in Lamentations says this in chapter three, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As we go to the Old Testament and we look at the promises of God, we look at the examples of the men and women of God as they live their life of faith, trusting in those promises. It encourages us as we see how they dealt with adversity, how they dealt with tribulation, how they dealt with joyous occasions of life, and they were true to their God. Or maybe they weren't true to God, and they fell and they sinned but then they were restored to the peace and the joy of their salvation through repentance. All of this encourages us and it provides us hope. And the main way it does this is by pointing us to Jesus Christ. In verse three that Paul quotes or gives us, verse three is actually a quotation of Psalm 69, a messianic psalm, a psalm that is used quite often in the New Testament. All of the gospel writers and the apostles of those writers of those gospel accounts, they pull from Psalm 69. Jesus pulls from Psalm 69, and here Paul does the same. And in doing so, it's reminding us that all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter, it's all profitable. Even those portions of the Old Testament that Jesus has fulfilled through his death and through his resurrection. The, the Old Testament law that Jesus completely fulfilled in its entirety. 
While it may not have any authority over us, the the Mosaic law doesn't have authority over us anymore. It certainly has value for us because it shows us our own need for a Savior. It shows us the depth of our sinfulness, and it drives us to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sheds light on God's redemptive plan, and it gives insight to us on what it means to be a new covenant believer who is sustained by the gospel. And so Paul's interjection here in verse four is a great reminder to all of us of the power, the importance of the scripture in maintaining unity within the body of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there's the path to true unity. Verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul begins in verse five to pray. He's coming to the end of this section of instruction. And he ends it out with a prayer for our good and for God's glory. And what's neat about it is that his prayer actually echoes, in many respects, Jesus's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. If you've never read Jesus's high priestly prayer, it would be well worth your time to spend time in it, reading it over again and again, examining it and reading it carefully as it reveals so much about the heart of Jesus. Verse 1 says this in John chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And those words open up Jesus's last hours on earth before he goes to the cross and sheds his blood for our sake. And what's interesting is that when you look at that prayer of Jesus and that high priestly prayer, you'll see different themes. And you'll see a common theme, for example, in his prayer, he prays for his followers. He prays for those disciples that are with him right then. He prays for the disciples of the disciples of the disciples. In other words, you and me. We're included in John chapter 17. He makes reference to us. And specifically, he prays for certain things for us, for our joy, for our sanctification so that we would become holy even as he is holy, that we would know the truth and that the truth would guard us from error, that that we would be on mission, that we would fulfill that great commission that he gives us to go and make disciples of all the people. He prays for unity among us as his followers and that we would have a real deep love, like the love that Jesus has for the Father and the Father has for the Son. Jesus prays all of these things. And so in Paul's prayer, when he's praying, this is a serious matter. He's not praying for unity and harmony simply for unity and harmony's sake. He's intentional. He has an intentional reason for praying for this. He reveals to us in this prayer why unity is so important. In verse 6 and 7, it's clear 
that it, unity in the church is necessary if God is going to be glorified in the church. Because believers who tear each other apart, who are not one in attitude towards each other, end up being a reproach to the gospel in the eyes of unbelievers. That's just reality. You know, Dr. James Boyce has uh, written quite a bit on this topic of unity and unity in the body of Christ. And he makes the point that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not conformity. It's not us all being little clones of each other. Unity is not us being some kind of a spiritual version of the Stepford Wives, for those of you who understand that reference. Not at all. Unity does not mean that we do not have differences of opinion on what's going on in our nation. It doesn't mean that we're going to have differences of opinion on styles and, and how the Bible is to be applied. As the Holy Spirit works differently in our lives, he's going to apply it differently. And that's perfectly okay to have differences like this. But it's our attitudes towards one another when we have those differences that either ends up glorifying God or becoming a reproach to the gospel. Dr. Boyce was asked one time his opinion about having you know, so many different denominations in the Protestant church, and wasn't that really a, a reproach to the gospel? And, and Dr. Boyce said, no, I, I don't actually think that different denominations are a reproach. He said, think about it like this. He said, you know, Henry Ford invented an automobile, but aren't you glad that there's a, you know, a Chevy version and a Toyota version and a Honda version, that we have all of these different styles of that one thing, the automobile, and because those different styles speak and address needs that I may have that you may not have. And the same thing happens within the body of Christ. We have this unity around the essentials of the faith like we confessed last week in our creed. And regardless of what the name on our church is, or the denomination is, as a Protestant church, we have these things that we hold in unity. But then there's going to be differences. Chevy or Ford, you know? A Lincoln or a Toyota. Uh, we have these differences. And so here's how uh, Boyce, Dr. Boyce responded to this idea of unity and conformity and uniformity in the church. He says, I don't think that the world is even particularly troubled by the fact that Christians disagree on some doctrinal matters. After all, they disagree with other people too. The real problem is that Christians often do not appreciate and support one another, recognizing that whatever differences may exist, all who are Christ's followers nevertheless belong to the same family, fellowship, and body, and therefore they belong to one another. That is how, above all other ways, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ must be glorified by us before the watching world. This harmony, this unity in a local church like our church here at Covenant, it's vital for God's glorification within the eyes of the unbelieving world. So the question then becomes, how does that grow in our church? And Paul gives us a twofold answer in verses six and seven. He says, first of all, in verse six, that it happens together with one voice, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
If there's one thing that can build unity and harmony between us as members of the body of Christ who have diverse opinions and approaches to life, it is to worship to God together in both the spoken and sung prayers. Through spoken and sung prayers, our hearts end up getting knitted together. The, the ties that bind us are strengthened. Now, if that phraseology may seem kind of perplexing, I'm really pulling from Dr. John Frame. Dr. John Frame wrote a book on worship, and he, and he points out in this book that you know, worship, obviously, it includes what we're doing right now, sitting at the feet of someone who is opening up and expositing the Word of God. We're humbling ourselves before God's Word, saying, I need this instruction. Worship includes fellowshipping with one another and, and giving of our tithes and offerings. But worship, a vital part of worship within the family of God, is prayer. And he's making a distinction because he doesn't actually, you know, think of music, singing, as anything different than prayer. That, that songs that we sing together is not a different category than prayer. It's just a different way prayer is manifested and uttered. So we can pray with the spoken voice. We can pray with the sung voice. And we see this in the, the Bible. The book of Psalms, that, that hymn book for the Hebrew people, were prayers. Psalm 1 is a prayer. Blessed is the man who walk on a... That is a prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a prayer that was written by David, by other men of God and women of God, and, and it was put to music and then sung. And so many of, our, of these things that we think of as songs are actually prayers that are then sung. Think about that for a moment, that the songs that we even sung this morning, the truth that is in them, what they aspire to, the emotions that they reveal, the truth that they reveal in us ends up being a prayer to God. And so we may pray with different voices. We may choose different words, but when our focus of prayer is the same, it may be spoken word, it may be sung word, it still comes before God as this one incredible mighty voice that's being lifted to Him. And so singing together songs, which are really nothing more than musical prayers to God, Paul's pointing out that these things, they build unity, they build harmony within the body of Christ. I'm very thankful that we're able to to worship together virtually this morning, but I got to tell you, it's not the same when there's nothing but empty chairs here. <laughs> we can sing together in the privacy of our homes as you know, Paxson and the worship team leads us this morning, but we are missing out on something by not being in each other's physical presence. You see, when I'm in the audience and I'm singing, and, that, and you think about that, we're lifting our hearts to God, we're confessing things to God, we're proclaiming and adoring God and the truth of God. And I look around and I see you doing the same thing. This immediately has a spiritual benefit of, of knitting our hearts together. We are unified around something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And the way we do this is when we lift our voices up together to God. And we pray to Him. Maybe it's in our small groups, in our discipleship groups. This week, we're starting off a, a week of prayer. 
It's an important week. And what we are hoping to see happen is that with the spoken word, with the sung word, we pray together all week long, culminating next Sunday in a concert of prayer, which is going to be a very different Sunday morning service. I won't be standing up here bringing you a sermon. Instead, we're going to come together and we're going to lift our voices to God. We're going to pray around themes just as Jesus prayed around themes in the high priestly prayer. And we're going to come together and lift our voices before God. And we're going to pray. And some of those prayers we're going to sing to him as we confess sin and we proclaim his greatness and we adore him and we thank him for all that he is. Many different voices joined around common themes like Jesus's. This unifies us. It creates harmony in our church. And it glorifies God because one voice comes before him proclaiming his greatness, confessing our need and our brokenness, thanking him for all of his provision, depending upon him by bringing to him the requests that are on our heart that weigh us so heavily right now during this time of pandemic, during this time of division in our country. We need this week of prayer for our country and for our land. And so I want to encourage you next Sunday morning. I want to encourage you this week, those of you who are in discipleship groups, even though we don't normally meet during the summer, arrange the time, get together through FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, or even in person, if you can do that safely. Take the prayer guides that have been provided to the small group leaders. The, the prayer guides are also posted on our church website under the prayer section and, and use them to come before God as a group of Christians, putting yourself before him, laying out these needs, praying for God's kingdom to be manifested in our lives and in our church. Primary way that unity and harmony grows in a church is for a church to pray together, to worship God together, of which prayer is a vital part of that worship. He says in verse 7, the second way that we, this happens is to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is kind of Paul's final statement on Christian liberty here in chapter 15, as it applies to the individual. It's a statement that he has made in other places in chapter 14. But it's this idea that we are accepting one another just as Christ has accepted us. We come before Jesus with all of our brokenness, with all of our sin, and the good news of the gospel this morning is that if you're listening to my voice and you don't know Christ as Savior, you do not have to clean yourself up first. You can come to him just as you are, with all of your brokenness, with all of your sin, with all of your addiction, with all of your baggage, with all that is in your life that brings you pain, and you can lay it at the feet of the cross and be forgiven and redeemed and rescued. And so welcoming one another like this, accepting one another, not insisting on uniformity and conformity on, of thought, and lifestyle and disputable matters, but instead valuing one another because we have been created differently. We have different likes and dislikes and personalities. So valuing one another and how we are different and valuing one another and how we are the same around Jesus Christ. That kind of unity, it glorifies God. And what we see at the end of this passage is a beautiful picture of what this kind of unity 
will ultimately look like. In verses 8 to 13, Paul finishes out this prayer with this beautiful picture. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and others. And in order that the Gentiles, now he's moving beyond the Jews, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul finishes out this whole section on unity by reminding us that there is coming a day when we will all be unified around the throne of God. Jew and Gentile, Here you have the Jewish people, one ethnic group, Gentiles, hundreds, thousands of ethnic groups. Paul is reminding us that what God is up to, his plan is to take a diverse number of people from every tongue and tribe and people and gather them together under the banner of Jesus Christ as a unified body, as a unified family. And one day, we're going to stand before him And while we may be brown and white and black and in every kind of skin tone and color, every kind of language and tribe and customs, and all may be different, we will all be unified as we wear the white robes of Jesus' righteousness that are given to us through faith in him. And on that day, we will lift our voices in unity, praising our God who has redeemed us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, may that day come quickly. Thank you that you will not be thwarted in your plan to bring people from every nation, tribe, and people, every dialect, every possible demographic difference that can exist. You're bringing it all together. And one day you're going to make all things new and all the divisions that can create disunity and hostility will be destroyed. All the walls that are erected because of sin will be broken down. And on that day, we will stand before you unified in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, proclaiming Hosanna, Hosanna, praising you, the Holy One. Thank you for this gift of salvation. Thank you for the plan that you're bringing about in this universe. May you bring it about in our church. May covenant be so unified and in harmony with one another that we give a sweet aroma of the gospel to those outside the family of God who don't yet know Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.